You're listening to Dodge Movie Podcast. Your hosts are Christy and Mike Dodge, the founders of Dodge Media Productions. We produce films and podcasts, so this is a podcast about films. Join them as they share their passion for filmmaking. Welcome back, everybody, to the Dodge Movie Podcast. Here we are in episode 77. We are kicking off our month of John Favreau movies with... I believe his, maybe not his, I think his first credited film is I think what they would yeah, categorize yeah. this as. His in, big break for sure. Yes. In 1993, he was in the film Rudy, directed by David Anspa, who also did Hoosiers and Moonlight and Valentino. It stars Sean Astin as Daniel Rudy Rudiger. John Favreau as D-Bob. Ned Beatty as Rudy's dad, also named Daniel. Charles S. Dutton, who played For- Fortune? Fortune was the name of the character yeah i never heard him call him that it wasn't in in any dialogue oh interesting and lily taylor who played his on again off again girlfriend sherry (laughs) surprisingly this film takes place at notre dame and the reason i say that is only two films have taken place on the notre dame campus the newt rockney no that's not how it's said newt rockney is maybe newt rockney was the last film before this one. So this one took place in North Bend, Holy Cross, College, Whitting, Indiana, Joliet, parts of Illinois. The writer is Angelo Pizzo, who also worked with Anspa on Hoosiers. So the synopsis for Rudy, thanks to IMDb, is Rudy has always been told that he was too small to play college football, but he is determined to overcome the odds and fulfill his dream of playing for Notre Dame. Fighting Irish. The taglines for this film are, when people say dreams don't come true, tell them about Rudy. I feel like Rudy came up with that one. I think he came up with a lot of this. (laughs) Sometimes a winner is a dreamer who just won't quit. (laughs) (laughs) I love your scoff at the... And of course, it's not the size of the dog in the fight. It's the size of the fight in the dog. That was fine as a slogan on a No Fear t-shirt in the 90s, but that's about (laughs) it. Okay, I have a funny story to tell before we kick it up with your pickup line. Tell it. Okay, so I, I actually told Mike this this weekend because I couldn't wait, but here y'all go. <laughs> here you go. So Rudy, as Mike kind of alluded to, is his biggest fan. And I think he talks about himself and his process on getting onto the team quite a bit. And thus was the case one day. I don't... No, I believe it was in South Bend, Indiana. He was at a bed and breakfast and there happened to be a friend of David and Spa nearby. Now, Rudy didn't know this and he was telling, he was regaling the table with his story of, you know, him and his determination of getting on the team. And the guy couldn't believe his story. He was just like, if this is true, this is an amazing story. And so he walked, they were all getting up to leave and he walked over and he said, is that, is that all true what you just said? And Rudy was like, yes, absolutely. And he's like, then you need to meet with my friend, David Anspa and Angelo Pizzo, who did Hoosiers. And when Rudy heard that, he was like, oh my God, that's exactly who I need to talk to. I need to talk to those guys. They need to make my movie. So they set up a meeting. Angelo and David had gone out partying the night before. And so they were quite hungover and they missed the breakfast meeting. And Rudy was not going to take no for an answer. After waiting two hours at the restaurant, he started walking around Santa Monica and ran into a couple different people and said, you know, Angelo Pizzo, do you know where he lives? How could I find him? Ran into apparently a very loose lipped mail carrier who told him 
where Angelo Pizzo lived. And all of a sudden, he gets a knock at the door and Rudy is standing there. And when he opens the door in his underwear, Rudy says, you're late. And so he lets him in and they talk about the movie. That's an amazing story of stalking. <laughs> but I just, I, I would, I'm not saying it didn't happen, but I'm surprised that if somebody stalks you to your house and then it costs you about writing a film that you would let them in. I would think most Hollywood producers would say, go away and never come back. So that's amazing. Well, he did, he did stand him up. Well, uh, okay. I, I'm not sure that's the first time that a producer has stood up a writer in the history of mankind, but okay. <laughs> well, he wasn't the producer. Uh, th that's true. I, no, he is credited as producer as well as screenwriter. Right, but at the time he wasn't. He was just right, Rudy. Right. All right, kick us off with your pickup Well, line. no, I was talking about Angelo Pizzo. The pickup line is set hut. We actually hear a little bit of dialogue before we see any footage, but it, it was not extremely legible, but it was uh, the same basic thing. They were playing football. Rudy is like a five-year-old is trying to play football with his brothers. Aw, that's cute. And it shows how much he loved the sport, because I believe it's shortly after that that he repeats the announcers of a famous like the announcers call of a, a famous game yeah we could figure out how he would possibly have had a recording of that and so that he could memorize it and he's re he's he's re repeating it along with the audio so it was obvious that he didn't have like a you know photographic memory or whatever that he just repeated it and so i would want someone to explain that like how would how would a child in 1955 have access to an audio recording of a football game mm -hmm. so some notes on the acting and casting in this film many of the priests and miscellaneous notre dame employees also served as the employees in the film this is the first credited movie debut of vince vaughn which neither of us have ever caught before but i know after seeing that was kind of looking for him and and he is one of the fellow right players and i believe he even has a line he has at least one line i if you hadn't pointed at that person and said that's a young ben Vaughn, i wouldn't have i wouldn't have believed it i don't think he looks you even like had Vince trouble Vaughn. seeing it knowing it was Vince Vaughn. yeah yeah he just looks very different to <laughs> I, my eye i think if it wasn't for imdb he wouldn't have believed me yeah <laughs> i think well i mean just being i thought you would be pranking me if you pointed at that person and said that's vince vaughn i'd say no you know it's carol channing right okay <laughs> according to the real rudy the character of fortune charles s dutton was a combination of three different people that were helpful in helping him realize his football dream i would be curious what spike lee's interpretation of that fortune character is oh interesting yeah yeah because it just reminds me a little bit of the legend of Bagger Vance, where the one person of color in the film is is kind of this like homespun guy who just exists to give Rudy the, the the wisdom he needs at that one moment, right? A very magical character, if you get my drift. I do. Yeah, I, I, yeah, they'd be curious, but putting him in the role, yeah, interesting. Yeah. Head scratcher. All right, my last little bit of trivia is Ned Beatty played his father in this film, and just a year before, he appeared in Prelude to a Kiss in 92, in which he played the husband of Sean Astin's real-life mother, Patty Duke. Wouldn't you say that Ned Beatty was the only big-name actor in this film well, at that time? Yeah, I'm trying to think. 
Because, yeah, Sean was probably more known for Goonies and maybe some teen movies. So he probably, I mean, this is pre-Lord of the Rings, obviously. Did he star in Goonies? I didn't think. Maybe he had a yeah, starring he, role. He, yeah, I would say so, because he's the he's the kid who's, whose house is being foreclosed okay. on. I, I saw it more as an ensemble piece. Well, sure. But also Robert Prosky, who plays Father Kavanaugh. That's a character actor I recognize, but I feel like Ned Beatty's a big name. Yes, I would agree with you. So for cinematography, I felt that, I mean, you kind of can't go wrong. It's a beautiful East Coast campus. And so the scenery is going to be amazing. They had the fall leaves, which is helpful. And they have all of the old style architecture, which wasn't built in the 1400s, but was built probably in the 1800s, early 20th century to mimic that. So that's good architecture, I suppose. Mm -hmm. And then I think whenever you shoot a steel mill, (laughs) it's just so dramatic because you've got, it's usually they're always dark and the figures, the people usually end up being in silhouette against the molten hot steel. And they're all like grimy and their faces are dirty. And it just always seems very cinematic to film in a steel mill. I I did have a note, by the way, I did like the insets and then there's a like a a long dolly shot across the steel mill when we're first introduced to that location. But it reminded me, you're right, the the orange molten steel reminds me how in every movie with a garage, there has to be some grinding with some orange sparks (laughs) in the background, right? But I had never thought of it till right now when you mentioned it, that they're always dark, which I'm sure that the cinematographer does so that the orange steel pops. But that doesn't make a lot of sense. If it's a dangerous workplace, you generally have lots of lighting. Right. That wouldn't make a lot of sense to me. I'm very curious. I don't know if there are any listeners who have worked in steel mills, but I would be curious if it was normal for them to be dark for some reason. I don't know. Yeah, let us know. I thought that using, there's almost, it's almost a montage. So he's on the campus. D-Bob says that D-Bob will help him if Rudy gets him a date. So it's this scene where Rudy is is chatting up all the ladies from around the campus and we've got the choir boys singing and you can kind of hear some of his dialogue, but very, very little. So I thought it was an interesting way to kind of like do a montage. That is right. It's almost like their singing was diegetic, but then maybe it wasn't because it was a montage. It was a clever, yeah, a clever thing. And it shows again his, I guess you would say, persistence. Right. In that he doesn't wait for any sign of interest from these young women before he approaches them and tries to chat them up. And I did especially like the choice of the three girls who are kind of sitting on on like some stairs eating lunch and he says something and they just laugh at him. Right, right. right. And then they get up and leave or something. I I think that's accurate to that behavior. And and maybe that was accurate to how he he got places. But it was interesting how dedicated he was to finding D-Bob, a girlfriend. Right. One for himself. Like he didn't. That wasn't his interest. He was all football all day. Yeah, just ask Sherry. He had no interest in that. (laughs) Right. Well, and it's interesting because I think if you're going after a lady or even just if you're going after someone you know, that you're interested in, your confidence level is going to be higher if you're going after for, you know, if you're the wingman, because you have have nothing to lose. Nothing to lose. (laughs) So, right. It kind of shows not only is he focused on football and and focused on getting what he needs, but also just kind of in a way how clueless he was. Right. I did notice that there are a lot of parallels in my mind between this film and the Corey Haim vehicle, Lucas from the 80s. 
he seems a, a little naive isn't a good word, but that's part of it. Mm-hmm. He just seems kind of a little dim, a little slow. And there was another montage when they were, I mean, classic. It's when they're doing drills, when he makes the team and they're all doing drills. That was another montage. Right. I thought the actual football scenes were fairly realistic, at least based on my experience. I, I did love the line of dialogue, take a knee. If I had a dollar for every time a football coach said that, I'd right. be a rich, rich person. They showed him doing ropes, which again, not exactly sure what that did, but we did ropes. I think it was just an opportunity for the players to trip and fall as a pratfall for the coaches. <laughs> One thing that I did not quite buy is after practice, the players and coaches run back to the locker room and you can hear the clack of their cleats on the on the concrete. That's why you don't run when you're on concrete because it's really easy to slip and fall and hurt yourself. Mm. And if the if the players are walking, certainly the 60-year-old coach is walking. Right. So that was a little... Uh... So you question whether Sean Astin did the drills. Right. And I have confirmation <gasps> from a interview that he did with, I believe it was Dan Patrick, and he said, sure enough, he did every single drill. He was down on the field getting hit just like Rudy would have. Oh, mad props to Sean Astin. Because in case it's not immediately apparent, he's not the tallest or biggest human being. Right. IMDb says five foot six. And I'm going to say that it's it's not unknown for publicists to add an inch or two. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So he's not that big. And you see him standing next to those players. They easily weigh twice what he does. Right. And so that, that wow, great credit to Sean Astin for his, his method acting there because that was brutal. Yeah. And David Anspa said that the football scenes have an added sense of realism because he never filmed any of them with the camera on the field. As with the broadcast of a real game, all football scenes were filmed with off-field cameras. So I assume. That is a great choice from the director. Yeah. It's really well done because it does make it feel real. The scene where Rudy... He, I think he's a student at Holy Cross and the first probably semester, I guess, that he was there and he wants and he wants to get into the game and he can't. And, and you noticed it was probably like a crane shot where it just cranes up the wall. And to me, just showing, like putting that emphasis on how distant, like he's so close, he can hear it, but this giant wall is keeping him. Right. Oh, from that, what he would absolutely love. That's just, to me, that's like a Hall of Fame shot. That was so well done. Because it starts down at ground level and you can hear the sound of the crowd in the background. And then it just starts, the camera just starts raising up, 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 up. And then all of a sudden the top of the stadium comes into to view and you can see on the other side of this wall, just like 10 feet from him, there's tens of thousands of people cheering. And that image of him standing alone with that wall between him and the crowd. Oh my gosh, it was just so well done. Mm-hmm. A little bit of trivia. There's a scene where he comes, where Rudy comes in to ask Coach Parsegian if he can dress in one game because it's been his dream to play. And the coach is watching some game film and the film he's watching is the actual game that Rudy played in. Oh, wow. That's interesting. Isn't that fun? Yeah. I also loved the Dawn shot at the beginning, you know, in that golden, the morning golden hour of them doing calisthenics. I thought, you know, you can't go wrong with that. I believe they even got some steaming breath because it was really cold. Yes. Which, you know, it's in South Bend. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah. How about you? Was there any writing choices that Angelo Pizzo did that you admired? There's a, there's a line here, which is it kind of shows the... the 
what what the the family is like when the I think it was the dad says the problem with dreamers is they're not generally doers. Mm. And that's kind of a little rough, you'd think, to <laughs> tell tell your own kid like, look, kid, you're a dreamer and you're not doing do anything. But I have to say this was kind of very broadly drawn. To me, this is sometimes bordered on cliche of sports films. And I know people really like Hoosiers, and I haven't seen that in a while, so I, I can't comment on it. But this one, I mean, there were some parts of, of like I said, the, the way the, the football scenes were shot and, and people getting hit and all that. But it, it just felt a little a little cliched for me. In particular, like the, the, the scene where they, they, they come in and they, and they you know, put their jerseys down. And then also there's some slow golf clapping that goes on <laughs> that's a little rough. So I don't know about that. But there were also apparently some, a little bit of liberties taken with the actual story like they skipped over that he spent four years in the navy right and i actually think that 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 was an odd choice to leave out i think that would have helped the film i think it would help the character oh excuse me go ahead it's interesting because i read in the trivia that even though they skipped over it at one point he comes i think i can't remember what scene but he's carrying a big duffel bag and it says u.s navy on it so it's almost like a show don't tell but it was so subtle that i would have never picked up on that had i not read it in the trivia right and I think that would have informed the audience's understanding of when Sherry takes him by the house and says, you know, was it you owe me? Which would imply that, you know, she'd spent four years waiting for him while he was on the good ship Lollipop and they came back and she's like, all right, buddy, you know. Right, which she could have rolled into her dialogue so that we knew. Yeah, yeah. You could so, even even had like the mom either reading a letter or, you know, saying goodbye as he goes towards a plane or something. Right. And then also the, the, the scene where they, for some reason, have to go into the locker room and, you know, it's got the dramatic lighting and he takes the stool and he, I don't think I responded to this one. Which is ironic because I think on that same Dan Patrick, or no, it was a different one because it was David Anspaugh said that when Angelo Pizzo went to South Bend to get to do research to write Hoosiers, he came back and told David that there's no conflict. Everybody gets along. Nobody's late. There's never been any fighting. I've got to make the whole thing up. And Dan Patrick was beside himself. He said, you know, Rudy often gets criticized for the fabrications that they added in when in fact Hoosiers has far more than Rudy. Well, then Hoosiers must be entirely fictitious. <laughs> they just stole the names of the people. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Yeah, I, I have to say, I, I think this film is entirely in keeping with what I understand about the individual Rudy Rudiger. Yeah. And it is actually in keeping with my experience as an outsider of Notre Dame. Lots and lots of self-promotion. Just, yeah, it didn't land with right. me. Right. So on to costuming. There's a scene that never gets explained. John Favreau <laughs> is a TA in a classroom. And the, the, the professor is so good. The professor is very, very boring. And he looks and all of a sudden I notice uh, he, uh, has, he has a watch on each wrist. Yeah, left and right. He looks at his, I think his, his left hand and he's just like rubbing his eyes because he's just so bored. And this professor putting him to sleep. All of a sudden I notice like, why does he have two watches on? And it never gets explained. Never gets explained. It's like Dwayne Wade's flip-up glasses, right? I wonder also, because we noticed when he comes back to watch Rudy play in the game, he rolls up in a stretch limo, he's <laughs> drinking champagne, he's ordering the chauffeur, I don't know, to do something. And we're like, wait, how did money bags all of a sudden? Right. And also And that's never explained. That his girlfriend, who previously 
looked like Adrian from the original Rocky. Yeah. Is now suddenly she's gotten a makeover. <laughs> right. right. As you do. Uh, I, yeah, I guess he came into money. Yeah, uh, somehow. But once again, well, it's not called D-Bob, the movie. It's called well, Rudy. And, and I will say <laughs> that when he's introduced as D-Bob, no one... No Bo- ask the obvious question of what? Where does D Bob come from? That's not an actual name we've heard of. His name's Charles or something. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> His name's Pete Hocklatubi. So the crowd scenes are actual scenes from a Notre Dame Notre Dame and Penn State game in 1992, and that is evident as you see lots of 90s hair in what is supposed to be oh. a 1960s film. <laughs> I also noticed it before you even paused and mentioned it. <laughs> I just, there's one shot and I'm like, that gal has 90s hair. Like, And then, you know, I immediately thought, okay, well, it's an extra, you know, they're shot in 93. Okay. But I have to say to, to the hair department, I like the Favreau sideburns. They, they gave him what I thought was reasonable for period, yeah, period appropriate, like 1972 sideburns. If any of you are familiar with the poster, Sean Astin, while visiting a Giants baseball game in the radio booth, the poster was hanging and he said that he was he would that was shot on the Stanford campus. So apparently, as they did promo, they didn't feel it was important to fly back to <laughs> South Bend and just went up to Palo Alto. Or maybe Notre Dame saw the dailies and said, you're banned. Right. <laughs> so let's see. Jerry Goldsmith also worked with David Anspaugh. He was the... He wrote the score. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> I was trying to think what the name of that would be. Composer? Yeah, he was a composer for Hoosiers. And so David Anspaugh and Angelo Pizzo brought him in on this one too. And coincidentally enough, one of the songs was what John McCain used when he ran for president as his kind of like anthem song which reminds me in a very vague way there are just a handful of composers that we know by name right from hollywood they seem to get a lot of work and i was thinking that would be an interesting thing to delve into but then that reminded me of jack black's character and i think it's called the holiday i think he plays uh he plays a movie music composer yeah and we know jack black's name yes we do know his name but we don't know his character's (laughs) name I know you thought it was a little campier or tropey, but I did like when he gets the eligibility letter, how the music swells, because it's good news. And it, and then they pan around because we're looking at him when he's opening the letter. And then it's almost like a one continuous shot. They pan around to see what he's seeing. And it's Dawn and he's seeing the beautiful campus that he's now a student of. <laughs> I don't know what to say to that. Okay. Uh, my last little bit of trivia before we go into your segments is you doubted that in the game near the end when they haven't put Rudy in yet and a player starts chanting Rudy, Rudy, and it catches on and goes around the whole stadium. You doubted that being a thing, correct? Yes, I I am skeptical that that happened in real life. Okay. So the director says he talked to several people who were at that game and they all said that happened. He said that the students of the college were very familiar with Rudy. There were articles written up about him in the newspaper. And so that in fact did happen that the students started it and it did. Oh, it did happen. That makes sense. First of all, I think those articles were written by Rudy himself. <laughs> um, but that, that makes sense because I could, college students do like to, to heckle. And so they probably got some 
some degree of, of you know, satisfaction out of... Oh my God, you're so cynical. I can't believe you think it was just as a heckle. Well, it could have been as a heckle because there's this little kid who's who's not quite right in the head who's, you know, I mean, at this time he's like 26 or something. I know, but everybody loves an underdog. I think they would have naturally, like, been excited and want to be a part of and want to witness, you know, an, a historic event that somebody who really, you know, football is mostly about merit or all about merit. Well, maybe not, but you know, and I think they would be excited. Mm. Yeah, maybe. (laughs) All right. Is there any head trauma? (laughs) Well, there's a whole lot of football playing, but I don't have any specific (laughs) incidents of head trauma other than all all of the scenes where he gets hit. Right. They show him with bloody nose more than once. And yeah. And given that they were still wearing face masks at the time, I, I, I you know, I, I, don't, I don't know how he would have gotten a bloody nose, but he got hit that hard. Well, his poor buddy, uh, Pete. Pete. Pete had some head trauma, probably. <laughs> yeah. I noticed at one point in the locker room, Pete had a fairly substantial contusion on his left shoulder. So perhaps there was also some head trauma that went along with that. Who right. Knows? But I think oh, I was referring to his demise in the steel mill oh was that pete yeah oh i thought pete was was the the kid who is there as a legacy oh yeah pete and the, the guy who dies in the sawmill that's probably a head it's trauma a steel mill <laughs> steel mill sorry I, I had oregon on the mind we have sawmills here not steel mills right did we have any smoochies smoochie 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 not that i saw i want to go back to the steel mill and my question is in 1993 was there still an active steel mill in the united states that they could use for filming well that was the part that was that 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 struck me as from a set's perspective where did they find an actual functioning steel mill they used the set from billy joel's allentown video Ooh, what about Footloose, not Footloose, um, Flashdance? Did they have a steel, oh, was yeah. she a steel mill? Yeah. Steel miller? What do you call a person who works in a steel mill? We'll never know. Man, it's hard to say. That's why I said sawmill. It's easier. <laughs> all right. How about a driving review? Is there much driving going on? Not much at all. There is one moment, though, that there's a Saturday morning when the bus is going to leave to take the kids to Notre <gasps> Dame on a tour. It's oh, heartbreaking. And... A car shows up and another kid kicks open the back door and jumps out before the car comes to a complete stop. <laughs> like your date. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, I did stop. I asked her if she just wanted me to slow down, but I, I did stop. I don't know if in the 60s, even before seatbelts were a thing, that people were cool with that. I, that. That was an odd choice. Okay. That was rough. So one little note before we go to the numbers, the epilogue says that since 1975, no other Notre Dame player character has been carried off the field. Rudy Rudiger graduated from University of Notre Dame in 76. Oh, I guess it was the 70s, not the 60s. And five of his younger brothers went on to college and all received degrees. So it has a happy ending. Isn't that lovely? Sure. (laughs) How about if we go to the numbers? <laughs> Let's go to the numbers. <laughs> oh my gosh. This film came out in 93, as I said. The budget was $12 million. It made almost two times that at $22.75 million. And for Superfan RJ, I found the adjustment for inflation. That would be $50 million today in the box office. So, you know, they doubled their money. That's pretty good, I would say. Good for Sean and John and Vince. Yes. It scored a 7.5 out of 10 on IMDb. Critics liked it a little bit more than Talladega Nights at 78%. And audiences love this movie at 90%. 
That's a travesty. <laughs> this isn't even half as good a film oh as Talladega gosh, you Nights. Have, you need to check yourself. <laughs> I'm sorry. My BS meter is pegged on this thing. <laughs> All right, fans. Write in and tell Mike why he's wrong. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All right, this one's just shy of two hours at one hour, 54 minutes. It's rated PG. It's listed as Biography Drama Sport. It is a TriStar Columbia Pictures. And David Anspot and Angelo Pizzo won the Studio Crystal Heart Award at the Heartland International Film Festival. Well, there you go. (laughs) Maybe you just need to be from the Midwest to appreciate this film, Mike. I think you need to be Rudy Rudiger to appreciate this film. <laughs> oh, we watched this. We did a free trial with stars to watch it for free. And I think in three days I need to cancel stars. <laughs> so that's how you can watch it for free. Let's see. I think that's it for today. Please join us next week when we will be talking about Swingers, a film that Fabro was not just a supporting character, but wrote, directed, and kind of inspires me to be a filmmaker because he kind of just did it on his own in his own way. So we'll probably talk talk a lot about filmmaking for that one next week so never forget oh and if you want to call mike and tell him if you like hoosiers or i mean if you like well hoosiers or Rudy, yeah hoosiers i remember fondly <laughs> call 971-245-4148 and let him know what you think but never forget dodges never stop and neither do the movies thanks for listening to dodge movie podcast with christy and mike dodge of dodge media productions to find out more about this podcast and what we do, go to dodgemediaproductions.com. Subscribe, share, leave a comment, and tell us what we should watch next. Dodges never stop, and neither do the movies. <laughs> <laughs>